Hey movie fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Uncharted Media Podcast. This is episode 142. This week we're going to do something a little bit fun and different. We're going to talk about our favorite animated series. So Josh is not going to be joining us again this week. Uh, hopefully he'll be back next week. We're just having some scheduling issues with uh, my work and his work. It's, it's complicated, but we're working on getting Josh back. He'll be back with us shortly, uh, but I... Hope to have a special guest with me for the discussion. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Uh, but yeah, our favorite animated series. This could be from when we were kids or adults. Case in point, I will talk extensively about Young Justice because I think that's a masterpiece of an animated series. Um, but yeah, I haven't really been watching or reading anything too new. I'm behind on some of my comic books that I need to catch up with. I hope to see Candyman sometime this weekend, but that's going to be a little tricky. So I'm hoping by the time we get to the next week's episode of the pod that I get the chance to see Candyman. But no guarantees. I'm hearing incredible things about Shang-Chi. So I'm getting excited about seeing that. Uh, there's, there's a lot of good movies on the horizon. I just haven't seen anything lately oh i did watch west craven's new nightmare uh i really really enjoy that i think that's probably going to end up being my favorite of the friday the third not friday the 13th wow um just melding all of my 80s horror franchise together this will probably end up being my favorite of the nightmare on elm street movies just because freddy's really not my thing but this the approach for this movie i really dug quite a bit and it was a fun meta almost like prototype for scream before scream would even be a thing but it was, it was good, so I'm hoping by next week to see Candyman. If not, I'm sure there'll be some other things that I've seen. Without further ado, let's get into the news because there's quite a bit to talk about. First of all, first off, we have the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer finally, finally debuting at CinemaCon, uh, which seems to be providing a lot of great news for you know, the people lucky enough to go to CinemaCon, but at least this trailer was able to debut for the general population who seems to be really, really enjoying it. Then there's me. I don't hate this trailer. However, I don't love it like everyone else seems to. Um, I have some concerns for the most part with this. I think it's a good trailer, but not a great one. Everyone seems to be really, really hung up on the details of like, wow, Doc Ock's back, Green Goblin's back, and that's cool. But tell me, tell me, Doc Ock doesn't look just a little bit wonky here? Like, I know Alfred Molina is older as an actor now. I know aging is a thing, and they use de-aging for this movie. It just looks a little weird and a little wonky to me. Uh, the Green Goblin, the Pumpkin Bomb, I got excited for that. That looks cool. I This trailer did not alleviate any of the growing concerns that I've had for this movie with each passing rumor or speculation that we've heard. I'm getting more and more worried that this is not going to be a Spider-Man movie. It'll be a Spider-Man movie in the sense of if you've ever been in any Spider-Man project whatsoever, you could potentially be in this movie. But as a Peter Parker, Tom Holland, Spider-Man movie, I think this will continue to fail the character. I was not a big fan of Far From Home. I didn't think it was bad, but Spider-Man Homecoming is still my favorite Spider-Man movie of all time above uh, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man 2 above into the Spider-Verse. I think that one is my favorite Spider-Man of all time. That So Far From Home to me was a big step down. And this continues to double down on almost the 
this Spider-Man's really not good enough on his own. He needs some help, whether it's Doctor Strange, which logically it would make sense for him to go to Doctor Strange for the whole, like, my, I need help, uh, wipe the world's memory, so to speak, which it's kind of weird that there's already people going, it's Mephisto disguised as Doctor Strange. Guys, I don't think Mephisto's ever going to be here, like, period, period. This Spider-Man seems... At this point in his career, he should be a lot more able to stand on his own and be an individual. Like, I would not be complaining so much about Spider-Man having a lack of identity if it was his first or second appearance. But now, this will be his third standalone movie and sixth appearance overall. And I'm just going, we are still kind of treating him like some kid that needs to be pampered and babied. Like... He's not acting like Peter Parker here. I appreciate, though, that in the trailer, uh, when he's being interrogated by the cops or whatever, they're just like, you killed Mysterio. The drones killed Mysterio. The drones that you owned. I'm like, yes, thank you. You should never have had the drones to begin with. Because in what world should a kid have nuclear weapons capabilities as he almost killed Brad? But then again, it's, it's Brad. Brad kind of deserved it. But... This trailer does not convince me that this is going to, like, finally get Peter out of the shadow of Iron Man or out of some other heroes. Like, it feels like Sony's kind of mandating, oh, he's got to have some watcher, some babysitter, whether it was Tony in the first one, whether it's even happy in the second one, which I'll get to my happy theory again in a bit here, or Doctor Strange in this one, like... I think so many people are hung up on, oh, yeah, these all these returning characters. Toby's coming back. Andrew's coming back. Doc Gawk, Green Goblin, which is all cool. But, guys, it's not like it's unheard of for a Spider-Man movie to drop the ball when it comes time for the third movie to come along because they overstuff it. And that's my biggest concern with this is this movie already seems so ambitious and it seems like there's going to be so much going on that I'm worried that, you know, Spider-Man, the reason why it's called Spider-Man No Way Home, the biggest, like, main character in this, might get lost in the shuffle in his own movie. Now, this could, that could just be me being overly cautious. However, just everything that we've seen, I'm not really digging. I don't understand. Then again, it's just a trailer. I don't understand why, in all the toys stuff that we've seen, why he's got, like, five different suits besides, you know, money. But... (laughs) What's wrong with just classic blue and red? Like, come on. We're seeing him with the Iron Spider again, which seems like a massive step backward. Like, he's using the Iron Spider when he's facing off against Doc Ock, unless that's really good uh, trick editing, which some people have already suggested that uh, in that final shot of the trailer, when Doc Ock's like, hello, Peter, he's actually talking to Toby, which I can see that wouldn't be the first time that Marvel's used tricky editing to disguise some story elements. I'm wondering how much Toby and Andrew are going to be in this. I'm hoping not a lot because I still want the focus to be on Tom because frankly, he still, at least to me, has not gotten out of the Iron Man shadow. And this trailer doesn't seem to get out of that anymore. He's still very much just, I'm here. I'm I'm content with still using Stark tech, whatever, whatever. However, some people have a theory and I would really, really love this if... The spell is successful, and at the end of the movie, the world forgets who he is, including Pepper Potts and Stark Industries, who are more or less supplying him with his stuff. So he 
permanently cannot use Stark tech. Please, please, please let that happen. What is so wrong with him just making his own stuff? And I know I harp on that issue a lot, but it's so important to the character. He has not had money troubles. He hasn't had to scrounge and make his own stuff. But I get even more frustrated because we've seen a little bit of it, and then they almost completely forget about it. The scene where we first meet him, when Tony picks him up in Civil War, to me is still one of the greatest Spider-Man scenes of all time in terms of boiling down the character of... Hey, he picked up some sparts, uh, some sparts. He picked up some computer parts while dumpster diving. That's how he got this keyboard, uh, this whole like computer setup that he has because he doesn't have the money. Or if you look at his phone, it's got it's an outdated phone with a cracked screen. The attention to detail on that is fantastic. Um, he's just like, I can't join you. I've got homework like that. That to me is Spider-Man that I know and love and have adored since I was a little kid. And that element ever since Civil War has just been completely missing, except for Homecoming, in which case he balances the work-life drama incredibly well, but it's also still very much a homemade superhero aspect. And I worry, as we get more along with this, of just like, really? We've seen some speculation that he's going to have some strange powers with this. (laughs) It's like you have a really, really cool toy that's already perfect how it is, but you keep adding attachments to it or like trying to make it better when it's already a perfect thing to begin with spider-man is a perfect character it reaches and impacts so many people i don't get why they keep trying to mess with the formula that's working i need to keep i need to stop bagging on how much i don't like this trailer and kind of delve into some thoughts and theories as to what i think will happen in this movie i think it's interesting that we only get five of the six of the sinister six which Quick side tangent before I get into more stuff. I've wanted the Sinister Six my entire life. More so than Captain America lifting Mjolnir. Um, Almost as bad as I want a a Nightwing movie. I've wanted a Sinister Six appearance at some point. But I've wanted Sinister Six versus Spider-Man. Not Sinister Six versus Spider-Men. I think a multiverse movie would be fantastic. With Toby fighting alongside andrew and tom holland but i don't want the three of them to fight the sinister six from each of their respective universes now maybe i'm the only one that thinks that but i thought to me when i was reading sinister six spider-man versus sinister six stories growing up the cool thing about that is it's like an anti-justice league instead of six heroes six or seven heroes joining together to defeat one villain it's six or seven villains to defeat one hero it makes the victory all that much better when spider-man's able to defeat them it's not like when he's fighting doc ock he's like okay i can't fight you inside because of your tentacles you've got the claustrophobic advantage so i have to fight you in the open air but if i fight you in the open air then i'm susceptible to vulture and these other villains like he has to think analytically of how to beat these guys and i've always appreciated that that's why i love the sinister six of how is one person going to beat this a six on one matchup to me is infinitely more interesting than a six on three matchup so that means their hero has to only defeat technically two people and assuming your partners are doing everything else you only have to defeat two people not six that the victory is less significant but again maybe i'm getting too ahead of myself and picking nits here but i just care about spider-man and i don't think we've been on the right trajectory but given how massive this is this could reset some things for tom holland spider-man i'm not so sure uh lastly let's kind of talk about my 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 john favreau theory my happy hogan theory i blanked on his name for a bit there 
many fans, myself included, have vocally expressed our displeasure with the fact of, hey, we're now six movies in with Tom Holland Spider-Man and not a single reference to Uncle Ben. We had some illusions references to, hey, when you can do the things that I can and then the bad things happen, they happen because of you in Civil War, which is kind of getting there. And then in no, and Far From Home, on his suitcase, it has Uncle Ben's initials of... It's like, it, like Ben J. Parker, Benjamin J. Parker. I'm trying to remember what his middle name is. Uh, but that's the closest we've gotten to Uncle Ben. I think the MCU didn't want to do another origin of Spider-Man, which I completely understand. But Uncle Ben is so critical to the character of Spider-Man, as is the with great power comes great responsibility. I know some people are kind of hoping that Tobey Maguire tells Tom Holland the with great power comes great responsibility. I think that'd be a great moment. However, I think the MCU is going to substitute Uncle Ben for Uncle Happy Hogan. I think it's not a coincidence that he's been in romantically involved with Aunt May since Far From Home, and they seem to be hitting it off. I don't think he'll ever become like an actual uncle uncle, but like a, oh, hey, he's he's close with my family type of uncle. To the point of, I think, and I've thought for a while, and this trailer kind of further makes me think, Happy Hogan is going to die here. Maybe somehow due to people knowing what uh, Spider-Man's true identity is. And I think that because this is a character in Happy Hogan that has been in the MCU since day one with the original Iron Man. However, he's not so important to the universe that if you take him out, a lot of things will change. John Favreau is getting increasingly busy with Star Wars and Mandalorian and potentially taking over Lucasfilm. Fingers crossed him and Dave Filoni take it over from Kathleen Kennedy sooner rather than later. I think if he dies, it's similar to a Coulson thing of people really love this character, but it's not a character that you can be without, so to speak. Like, the narrative can still be there even without him. I think you can still tell a lot of good stories, and you get more of the emotional gut punch if he's the one as opposed to a yet another Uncle Ben that we've never seen before. And we can get the with great power comes great responsibility from him. I know we harp on the Tony connection, but he can say something along the line of Stark always knew with break with great power comes great responsibility. And Happy can say that because he saw both the successes and the failures that Tony had in his own life. So now he's trying to impart that maybe as he's dying to Peter going, you have this responsibility as Spider-Man. You've done stupid things with it so far, but you've also done great things. You have to remember, with this great power comes this great responsibility. And it's a super, super sad moment. Um, It could be akin to the Gwen Stacy thing of you need a major character death at some point. And I don't think they're ever going to kill MJ because you can't. It's MJ. And we've heard speculation that someone major is going to be dying in this movie. I think the odds-on favorite here are happy. And maybe that's the catalyst for Spider-Man with the great power comes great responsibility to be more of his own person and not so much dwell on the needs and the tech or magical abilities of someone else. But maybe that's just me. What, what do you guys think? Are... Did you like the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer? Did it live up to your expectations? I think that's the other part for me. Uh, We waited so long, and I think the trailer was just 
fine, but in this world, just fine means you hated it. I didn't hate this trailer. There's a lot that I liked. There's just a lot more that gave me pause for concern. Now, another trailer that we got recently for an upcoming Marvel project is the quote-unquote final trailer for Marvel's Eternals. I keep wanting to call it The Eternals, but it's just Eternals. I still don't really know how I feel about this one. I mean, it looks visually gorgeous, but in terms of narrative, I'm still kind of on the fence. Now, I will say this trailer that they debut gives us a much better idea of the story, kind of, of the Eternals that have been locked in a eternal war, so to speak, against the Deviants. And I appreciate that almost right up front, someone's just like, well, why didn't you get involved with Thanos when half the universe was snapped away? Not just this world's, but every world's. They're like, well, we were told... Don't get involved unless the deviants are involved. And someone brings up the really good question of who's been telling you that, which we're led to assume this is Celestials, which no, Josh, because you're not here, I can poke fun at you. No, Josh, it was not Galactus that we see in this trailer. However, I'll forgive you because apparently a lot of people were having the issues that they thought Galactus was in the Eternals trailer. And mm -mm, it's way too soon for him. Plus, he didn't really look like galactus at all the visuals in this trailer look spectacular and i'm very very curious about this movie however i'm still not overly sold on it i i don't know what it is but i'm just it looks good from a visual standpoint i still don't know if i'm overly confident in what the story is i'm kind of getting the same sense that like a Blade Runner 2049 or Dune had of like look how cool this is it's got these epic sweeping vistas epic cinematography just epic 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 i'm going cool what's the human story to this what what's the reasons that i should care about this uh i don't fully need marvel connections to this you can have your side stories like ant-man sometimes doesn't really play into the larger mcu except for the quantum realm that's a big factor but by large those are smaller scales much more intimate stories this seems like a big sprawling epic, and I don't need to know necessarily how it connects to the MCU, but you do need to tell me a little bit more of why I should care. Like, cool, we've got Brian Tyree Henry, we've got uh, Richard Madden, we've got Angelina Jolie, we've got Selma Hayek. The cast looks spectacular. What is this movie about? I think they've they've failed in that several times now. I think these, the trailers have looked gorgeous. I just don't know if it's enough to get casual people in. I know Marvel themselves are super, super high on this movie. They've already talked about maybe putting this up for like some Best Picture nominations. And they I'm happy they're putting from Academy Award winning Chloe Zhao as director. I'm going, that's awesome. I don't know if the general population at this point will care about it. I... Th I'm going to go out on a limb right now and say I know Eternals comes out later, but as it stands right now, I could see Shang-Chi doing better at the box office than the Eternals. I I don't know. I think it's this thing with the Eternals of not clearly illustrating what the movie's about. It's Something about it is just not sticking with me, and I want to be invested in this. I want to know more. It looks great. I like almost all the cast in this. It looks different. It looks unique. But what's the story? What's the hook here? Like, I I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm being really, really negative this week, but it's just, I don't know. I feel like 
the MCU right now, after Endgame, they've got a bunch of really good individual pieces that are kind of like floating around in the ether. There's a little piece over here, a little piece over here. And I feel like we're missing the one or two big pieces that will kind of gather them all together and make them all connect. It's like loose balloons. You need to like kind of just brush out your arms and pull them together in a big bundle and go, okay, now I've got them all together in one thing. Like, how are they so connected? Everything feels kind of all over the place, which is fine, but you need to, I don't know. Eternals, it looks great. I feel like I'm repeating myself, but it looks great. I just have some reservations about it, so to speak. Now, this next one, I, I'll, I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of surprised. I'll be more surprised if it actually happens. And that is that HBO Max is reportedly working on a Black Canary movie starring uh, Journey Smollett. I, I believe that's her name. I'm blanking on her name. Journey Smollett. Bell. Journey Smollett. The same actress from Black Canary in Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation emancipation of one harley quinn she'll be back as as the lead role cool but hbo max you've announced quite a few things as of recently um and only one of them really has shown two of them have shown some signs of development like you've cast for black not black uh for batgirl and for blue beetle i'm getting my wires crossed You've announced the cast for those, but you've announced a lot of stuff for HBO Max that really has not gotten off the ground yet. Or a lot of projects or DC movies that have not gotten off the ground yet. Looking at you, Nightwing. Looking you dead in the eyes, Nightwing. Or the Green Lantern Corps movie. Not the show, but the movie. Like, a lot of DC stuff. Until it's actually rolling in front of cameras, I don't know if I believe will actually happen. Now, as to the casting, I thought she was great in Birds of Prey. I didn't mind Birds of Prey. There's quite a few people that didn't really dig it. I didn't mind it. It was better than I was expecting it to be, but I don't think it's top-tier DC. And I think a big problem of that was marketing. I am a diehard DC Comics fan, and even I, watching a lot of the trailers, going... So who are these people supposed to be? Yeah, obviously you got Harley there, but like Black Canary didn't really look or act like Black Canary for most of the trailers. Huntress was kind of weird in most of the trailers. They're more more closely resembling their combo characters in the movie itself, but even then it felt so very early prototype version of these characters. Canary does have a great moment that I would like to see expounded upon that does Harking back to more of her comic book origins that I very much enjoy. However, I'm still just going, I'll believe it when I see it. I think this actress is super, super talented. Apparently, she'll be reuniting with the writer from uh, Lovecraft Country who will be writing the movie. And this actress was known for being on Lovecraft Country. I think that'd be great. Maybe this is where we can get a theatrical version of Green Arrow. I wouldn't mind an Arrow and Canary movie, please. I would be absolutely down for that. I want that to happen. Uh, I want a theatrical version of Green Arrow, which again, it's too bad they had to have Ewan McGregor's Black Mask. Not he wasn't. Not that he wasn't great in Birds of Prey. He was fantastic. But I've always wanted Ewan McGregor or Charlie Hunnam, one of the two, but preferably Ewan McGregor as Green Arrow because, dude, he would just be way too perfect for this. So I guess I'll just have to settle for Charlie Hunnam, which is 
feel like we say that a lot about a lot of different roles of, I guess we'll settle for Charlie Hunnam. No, no, if it's a Charlie Hunnam, he's great, but very rarely is he anybody's top pick for casting choices. But I think this could be a lot of fun, uh, so long as the direction and the marketing is a lot clearer than Birds of Prey, which still to this day, it should have just been called Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey. That, I think, could have added easily another 10 to 20 million dollars opening weekend i think the name and then changing the name when the movie was in theaters to something else two birds of prey made it that much more complicated for people like the movies really isn't not that bad some of the action scenes i have some issues with but as a whole birds of prey was a interesting enough movie of something different and refreshing with some fun characters to be introduced like black canary but yeah, I think there's more possibility. There's more potential in a spinoff. But again, this is one of those I believe it when I see it. And maybe it's just me. I don't know too many Black Canary villains. Like, do we bring in some Green Arrow ones? Like a Prometheus, maybe? Or like Malcolm Merlin? I, I don't know. Do we have her do... There's that Arrow script. The Green Arrow movie from... I believe the mid two thousands script of well, what if Green Lantern, Green Lantern, Green Arrow? Everyone gets those mixed up. Uh, what if Green Arrow gets stuck in a prison full of people that he put there? So what if Black Canary gets stuck in a prison with people that she put there? I think that could be a lot of fun. I would like to hear more about the movie that uh, she was in. Kind of alluded to it, but I would like to know more about the dynamic between her and her mom, who was the original Black Canary. I think that could be interesting. Kind of like uh, what's it? Silk Spectre in Watchmen. Of okay, what's the difference between you and your mom in terms of super heroics? Uh, I, I think this could be a lot of fun. I think this could be interesting. But again, add it to the pile of DC projects that have been announced, and I won't believe until it actually starts rolling. Like Black Adam. Didn't think that would ever actually happen because of how long ago that was announced. So, give me hope that maybe we'll get a Nightwing movie someday. Um, but, again, this could be fun. It's just a matter of, are you actually being serious? Or are you just kind of announcing this to announce this? Now, next up in news is one of those, like, oddly specific, it feels like it's just catered to me type of news. And that is that Disney is developing a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea prequel um, I'm not gonna lie, this kind of gets me really, really excited. So, growing up, I was a huge 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea fan. There was a lot of these, like, Great Illustrated Classics books that I still have on my bookshelf. Uh, basically, it was like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Treasure Island, King Arthur, Robin Hood, uh, Three Musketeers. I read those so, so much, but the ones that I read the most were Treasure Island, Robin Hood, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So, you do anything with that, I will be there in a heartbeat. And to be honest, I'm actually kind of surprised Disney hasn't done this sooner. Because for those that remember, Disney has done a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea movie. But I feel like it was in the 60s or the 70s. And they really haven't done anything with it since. Whether that was a show or a new movie. This, to me, makes a lot of sense. And I'd be absolutely down for it. Because, again... I liked the stories a lot as a kid, and I, I could go for a modern adaptation, especially with modern visual effects. So, apparently, the story will be, like, the origin of Captain Nemo and the Nautilus, and the show will just be called Nautilus, which is already a fantastic name. 
It does make me wonder, though. Okay, Disney. You're thinking about doing a new live-action under-the-sea adventure series. And your brain didn't immediately go, Hey, we're doing a lot of live-action remakes over animated movies, right? Why don't we just do Atlantis the Lost Empire? Why don't we just do that instead? Nah, let's do 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, because way more people remember that than Atlantis the Lost Empire. Like, come on. When people say they're sick of Disney live-action remakes, they always say, well, yeah, except for those two that we actually want. Treasure Planet and Atlantis the Lost Empire. Those two are, like, specifically made for live-action remakes. Please, 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 I need those at some point. I need to see a live-action version of Jim's Solar Board. I need to see Milo in the Undersea Adventure. Uh, I just, yes, please. I'm very much excited about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I'd be very curious to see who they cast as Captain Nemo. Off the top of my head, Pedro Pascal, please. Just because he's Pedro Pascal and he's wonderful. And he's already got the Disney connection with Mandalorian. He might be too busy with The Last of Us, but just Pedro Pascal for everything. If not him, I'll settle for Hugh Jackman. And in what world did I say I'll settle for Hugh Jackman? Hugh Jackman should be everyone's top pick, but Pedro Pascal is the it thing right now. I like Pedro Pascal. I think he'd be great for this. I think there could be a lot of fun and adventure to this. The The thing with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is it just kind of ended, at least the version that I read as a kid, the book. It just kind of, Captain Nemo goes under the water, never to be seen again, except if you look for him. Um, I would love, especially with modern day, of what we know about the undersea world, Thanks to James Cameron. I'm, I'm wondering if James Cameron would be like, this is set underwater? I'm in. James Cameron's 20,000... Ooh, James Cameron's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea actually doesn't sound that bad. That, that actually sounds like something I would be interested in, and I'm not even the biggest James Cameron fan. But this could be really, really interesting. I'd be very curious to see what the... Um, oh, what's the squid? The gigantic squid would look like with modern special effects. I'd be curious to see what the modern adaptation of the Nautilus would look like. If this brings back the Nautilus ride at Disneyland or Disney World, yes, please, 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 because I love that. It's probably actually impossible to bring it back at Disney World just because of construction and new developments. But but bring back the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea ride. That was fantastic. Um, I think this could be a lot of fun. Again, Odd decision, though, to go, yeah, undersea adventure. Atlantis quietly in the corner. Uh, you, you asked for undersea adventure? We'll go with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, that really modern and popular franchise. Sure, why not? Um, this is a lot of fun, but it seems like an odd choice, but one that seems specifically targeted to me, and I appreciate that. Thank you, Disney. I'm still mad at you, Chapek, and that will never go away. Now, lastly for our news is one that's hardly surprising, but still very, very exciting for those in the world of the horror community, as we have some form of movement on Robert Eggers' upcoming remake of Nosferatu, as it seems like his constant companion in a lot of his movies, Anya Taylor-Joy, the big up-and-coming star that she is, has been added to the cast of this Nosferatu movie. Now, I don't believe we have any other cast at this time, but you cast Anya Taylor-Joy in anything, and I'm there. You cast her in a Robert Eggers movie, I'm even more there. Uh, this is a project that, like the Black Canary movie that's coming out, or even Black Adam, I'll believe it when I see it, because 
this I feel like Robert Eggers first announced that he was working on this project like five years ago and we really haven't heard anything. That being said, I think there is no one better to tackle Nosferatu right now than Robert Eggers. I absolutely love his movies. I like the Vavitch quite a bit. Uh, I think I like it more than The Lighthouse, which don't get me wrong. I love The Lighthouse too. That was a very trippy experience, but I just I love the Vavitch and what uh, Anya Taylor Joy was able to bring to the table there. I know the Vavitch wasn't for everyone, given how slow it was. I I appreciated the methodical pacing in it. Um, it's very much a different type of horror movie, but I really really enjoyed that. But one can never deny with Robert Eggers' movies how much attention to detail he puts in. I always just love, even more so the narratives in his movies, it's just the overall atmosphere. He makes you feel like you are living and breathing in the worlds that he is creating. The magical thing about the Vavitch, the witch for those that haven't caught on, um, the magical thing about the Vavitch is you feel like you're in early colonial America in the lighthouse, to be honest, I don't know what I was feeling, but it didn't feel like I was in a normal, safe environment. I felt like I was completely out of my element, which is what I was supposed to be doing. But the amount of research and effort that he puts into his movies are just fantastic. And just this creepy vibe that is always in all of his movies fits so well for Nosferatu. I think because the original Nosferatu dwells so much in what Eggers already excels at, which is its cinematography, its lighting, its so much of that German expressionism, which is known for the time for the, the 20s when the original Nosferatu came out, which I believe was 1922. Um, it's so contrasty with its bright brights and very dark shadows. And that already, to me, feels like Eggers. Like, I could see the lighthouse fitting very, very well as a companion piece to Nosferatu, not in terms of um, thematic elements or even the narrative, but in terms of overall visual style style the lighthouse feels very much like a throwback movie nosferatu i believe the last time we got one was the gus van sant one from the 70s i believe i we have not had a nosferatu movie in a very very long time primarily because we focused on you know actual dracula because nosferatu is a whole complicated issue of it's basically dracula without the copyright um i think Robert Eggers is absolutely the perfect guy for the job for this. I feel like he's got another project, though, before this comes out. So I'm not sure where we stand on that. Um, this could be a long way off. This could be next year or two. Nice thing with horror movies is they don't take nearly as long to make as like an Avengers-type movie. Uh, I just want to see the visual aesthetics that Robert Eggers will bring to a Nosferatu movie. I've wanted Robert Eggers to do a classic universal monster movie forever, just because the look and the tone that he brings, he has those dark shadows. Um, he likes that old school aesthetic that just screams Gothic. And that's what Nosferatu is. It's what I want from my horror. I love the Gothic aesthetic aesthetic. That's why I love sleepy hollow so much. I'm very much amped for this granted we don't know if this project is ever actually happening but if it does consider me super super on board and anya taylor joy absolutely now the question is what do we think she could potentially be playing some people have already suggested maybe she herself could be nosferatu i think that could be a really interesting spin of having a female nosferatu a younger version that'd be easier to entice uh 
a newer character to basically be the bride, so to speak. Um, maybe she's a Renfield type, which I don't think so because we're already getting a Renfield movie, but maybe she's the Jonathan Harker character of she's what's getting drawn in by this mysterious being. Um, there's a lot of interesting possibilities. doesn't matter what she's playing. I'm going to be immediately interested in whatever Anya Taylor-Joy has up next. I think this project's got a lot of promise, and I'm really, really interested. But what do you what do you guys think? I'm very curious to hear what you guys think about a Robert Eggers Nosferatu movie starring Anya Taylor-Joy. To me, that just sounds perfect. And as per usual, the sponsor for this week is TeePublic. For all your Uncharted Media merch needs, go to TeePublic and the link in the description. You can get t-shirts, hoodies, uh, whatever your heart contents with the Uncharted Media logo. And again, if you guys like what you see there and we start seeing some positive feedback on that, we're thinking about introducing some other designs, whether it's the tinfoil hat. I would really like to do a tinfoil theory hat shirt that I would proudly wear every single day of the week. Uh, but yeah, go to Team Public for all your uncharted media needs. Now let's get on to our main discussion, which it'll just be me this week. Sorry for all of you that have to suffer through this. Um, but yeah, I'm going to talk about my favorite animated series of all time. I'm trying to range from various types of shows, but also um, through the years, not just stick with one um error like it was super easy to just go here's my favorite shows from when i was a kid but no like actually think of different eras but i i think it's best to start off with probably some ones that i grew up watching with uh rescue heroes which is i still think to this day criminally underrated and underappreciated even if looking back on it seems like a pretty obvious attempt at just selling fisher price toys and I'm not complaining about that. So for those that might not remember, Rescue Heroes were basically, it was like Paw Patrol except with humans. You've got these like everyday hero types of like firefighters, uh, police officers, and whatever else with ridiculously large feet. Uh, they were basically just made to sell toys. They had like their big old fortress. They had their jet. They had uh, Rip Curl had his jet ski. Jake Justice had his police car. I had his little motorcycle. I remember all this so vividly. They had a long running TV show that, I, if I recall correctly, you can still find a bunch of Rescue Heroes episodes on YouTube. Um, but now, as an adult, I can appreciate the show even more for its use of puns. And by that, I mean literally every single character on this show is somehow a dad joke. Like the leader of the group, the firefighter, the brave guy that kind of looks like Tom Selleck is Billy Blazes. And the other leader that's a firefighter, the lady, Wendy Waters, or my personal favorite, the guy that kind of looks like Dwayne The Rock Johnson and needs to be played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson in the Rescue Heroes movie someday. Please, please, please let that happen. Rocky Canyon, the reason why he was the best is because he had a grapple hook. Like, everybody else had, like, a fire axe. Like, Billy Blazes had the, the fire axe in the back. Wendy Waters had, like, a fire hose. But Rocky Canyon... Rocky Canyon had a grappling hook, and that made him better than everybody. It made him better than Jake Justice with his stupid police motorcycle. Uh, Rip Curl with his overly big surfboard for his overly large feet. 
Uh, they even had a giant mechanized robot that I remember took a whole bunch of batteries and it was super, super cool. Like you could control it with this little remote. But the problem is the remote was like tied to its back. It wasn't wireless. And so like you'd have to like inch along with the you'd have to inch along with the giant robot if you wanted to make it move. Um, as a show, though, it was really, really solid. It was just solid kids entertainment of basically this is everyday heroes and obviously way over dramatized making me think that there are way more natural disasters in the world than there actually are like here's this massive rock slide or here's a big huge fire we're gonna save the day and yeah it was it was dumb fun but i enjoyed every single minute of it and i desperately desperately need a rescue heroes movie to come back please to some extent just because i had so much fun with it um i would still buy all the toys to this day if they were available so fisher price I'm saying this now as a 27-year-old man. Please, please make them come back. I I would pay good money for those, and that's not at all sad or disappointing at all. Uh, let's see. What else was from my childhood? Let's go with Clone Wars. Star Wars Clone Wars. However, not the popular one that everyone always is thinking about. No, I'm talking about the original one based off... Uh, I think the guy that created it was the same guy that did Samurai Jack. And it can you very much can tell by the animation style, but also how the heroes are portrayed. I, I don't mind the, the newer Clone Wars that Dave Filoni did. That's, that's totally fine. If a little disorienting at times of just... We're jumping over here, jumping over here, jumping over here. But I can't really fault that because the original Clone Wars did the exact same thing. So what it was was basically a fill-in between episodes two and three in really, really short form. The first season, there was only two seasons. The first season was 20 episodes, five minutes each. And they're basically almost like... Um, little buffer spots between your animated programming and the next hour programming. So, like, your animated show, like... I don't know what would be on around that time. Maybe Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends or Billy and Mandy or something like that. So that would end at like 6.55. And at 6.55, you'd get an episode of The Clone Wars. And it'd be five minutes. And right as it's getting good, they'd cut it. And they'd be like, nope, you got to watch tomorrow. Uh, some of them were excellent. Like, I still remember one of my favorites. I think it was like episode four or five. And it's basically like the clone commandos. Like the best of the best doing this own special mission to... Um, secure a turret or a big gun in Coruscant or something and it was so so cool because there's almost no dialogue spoken in the entire episode and so they basically are just communicating silently with each other and yeah it's almost like a special SWAT team episode and it's super super fun which leads to like an episode or two later when kenobi shows up on the scene and him and his forces lead um basically like a speeder bike fight against this guy named dirge who i'm still waiting for him to be recanonized in star wars lore because dirge was amazing uh dirge was basically this dude that almost like couldn't die like obi-wan stabbed him cut off his limbs or whatever else but he's almost like a venom or a carnage of like the limbs would just reattach themselves to him and it was super super gross but amazing at the same time um and then eventually kenobi spoiler alert for a show that's 18 years old now i believe is the first season of 2003 2003 kenobi gets sucked up in this guy and he force pushes him from the inside and he explodes and that could never be made in live action form because it would be super super violent and amazing um 
But the Clone Wars also, in that first season, did this really great thing of establish Asajj Ventress, who uh, later would be canonized in the new Clone Wars series, but uh, her mission against Anakin, I think that's one of the best scenes for Anakin that uh, any Star Wars material I've ever seen in terms of showing the path that he will eventually go down. So what happens is basically Asajj comes to Anakin to kill him on the um, orders of Count Dooku. And so they have this big epic fight that basically is the entire episode, and it is epic there's a lot of like in the dark and the only thing you could see is the lightsabers which presented a really cool aesthetic um and then at a certain point anakin really gets the upper hand and asajj basically only has one lightsaber in defense and anakin just wails on her and in that moment the music's building he's getting visions of obi-wan and qui-gon in his head basically like warning him not to do it and he just snaps and loses control and it's so beautifully and masterfully done that i really wish that was recanonized an actual thing in star wars lore because it it helped show the transition oh yeah he's got a dark side to him now fast forward to season two I remember when the debut episode came out, my family and I were on vacation, and I was, like, insisting them, we gotta be back in the hotel room, we gotta be back in the hotel room by this time, because the first episode of Clone Wars is gonna debut. And so, Clone Wars pulled a fast one for season two. They showed a clip of, like, five minutes, and so I was just like, alright, well, guess I'll watch the next one next, tomorrow, or whatever, and then the episode kept going. They did a flip of the first season. So instead of 20 episodes that are five minutes long, they did five episodes at 20 minutes. And so I was like, what? This is like a full length episode here. This is this is great. Um, And it was um, General Grievous getting more fleshed out because he was the big cliffhanger in season one. uh, Destroyed a whole bunch of Jedi. Gets dark in Clone Wars. It was great. And then season two. Uh, it basically leads directly into Revenge of the Sith with Grievous mowing down a whole bunch of Jedi. They're basically trying as best as they can to stop Grievous. He eventually kidnaps the Chancellor. There's a great showdown where he mauls like four or five Jedi, and it leads directly into Anakin and Obi-Wan basically rallying the troops saying, all right, Chancellor's been kidnapped. Let's go get him. It was a perfect way to end the series. It was only two seasons. Perfect. Great. And I will always prefer that over the other Clone Wars, which is fine. It recanonized Darth Maul, so thank you for that. Um, but yeah, I, I prefer the original 2D Clone Wars, and that's, I'm sure, just because I like that style. It almost made, like, the Jedi, like, superheroes. Like, Mace Windu at one point is surrounded by, like, a thousand super battle droids, and it's super, super easy for him to defeat them, even though he doesn't even have a lightsaber. He, like, basically has super speed. Um, it was a little over the top and really would not be any sort of sense whatsoever in a live action form but that's the joy of animation you can kind of do whatever your heart content is content with uh what else do we have oh i'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some that started as movies turned into a tv show because that for a while was a really really popular thing like aladdin had a tv show tarzan had a tv show i think beauty and the beast had a tv show i know little mermaid had a tv show but one of the best i think to me in terms of i actually prefer the series over the movie and that's saying something because i like the movie 
was Jimmy Neutron. I enjoyed the Jimmy Neutron show so, so much. And honestly, the animation isn't that bad. There's still some parts that I'm like, that doesn't necessarily hold up. Before its time, it looked pretty good and had pretty smart humor. I know the show has almost been memed to death now, especially with Jimmy's dad, who is probably one of the dumbest characters to have ever existed. Uh, But... I still quite enjoyed it, uh, whether it was Sheen's stupidity before that whole shenanigans of, let's spin it off into Planet Sheen, one of the worst Nickelodeon shows of all time, or I will always have a soft spot for Carl and the llamas. Like, whenever I hear the word llama or think of llama, my brain will automatically go to the ginger Carl and just go, I touched a llama! Um... Jimmy Neutron also just swung big, whether it was the Jimmy Timmy Power Hour, which was such a big deal back in the day. Those were awesome. I didn't even like Fairly Odd Parents that much, but you got excited for Jimmy Timmy Power Hour. All three of them. That was amazing. Uh, I also remember they did like James Bond spoofs, which had one of my favorite um, jokes that they've ever done of like um carl and sheen basically fall off a cliff and they land safely on the ground though on a big pile of snow jimmy's still at the top hooked on something and they're like he's up there up there no up there carl look you can see his hair and so like the show like from the ground view you can just see this big old swirl hanging onto a branch i'm like okay that's that's pretty funny it's stupid humor but it works um Jimmy Neutron never tried to be anything more than it was, and I appreciated that. Jimmy Neutron, to me, is is one of my favorites. It's just dumb fun in every sense of the word. Ah, let's see. Another one that kind of was based off a movie that got turned into a show to a certain extent uh, was Buzz Lightyear of Star Command. The, The thing is... It got a movie first, uh, just called Buzz Lightyear of Star Command, which if I remember correctly was like the first three episodes of the show or something, like three or four episodes, and just got merged into one without the commercial breaks or whatever, which obviously is a spinoff of Toy Story. Anything Toy Story when I was a kid or still even to this day, I will watch because I'm that much of a sucker for Toy Story. Uh, I loved Buzz Lightyear of Star Command so, so much. It's still one of those shows that I can recite the entire opening from bell to bell, basically, of calling Buzz Lightyear the galaxy's greatest hero. Skilled, courageous, and ever vigilant, leaping into action, Buzz Lightyear hurdles to the rescue. His ongoing mission to defend the universe from the dark forces of evil. These are the adventures of Buzz Lightyear of Star Command. And then it'd just be epic and amazing, and you're just like, yes, this I'm in for a good time right now. And then you get Patrick Warburton to be Buzz Lightyear. I know some people wanted Tim Allen, which that's a whole interesting story that i think tim allen actually voiced the character in the buzz Lightyear of star command animated movie but not the show but there's a version that patrick warburton voices in the animated movie it's super complicated i I think i may not have all my facts on that one but it was patrick warburton as tim out was voicing buzz and i think i was more okay with it because the show never pretended to exist in the toy story universe this was basically like Hey, this is the show that Buzz Lightyear the toy is based off of. You have uh, Buzz is basically the, not really captain, because he does have a captain that kind of looks suspiciously like Jake Jonah Jameson or every other obligatory police commissioner with a mustache and a white hair and 
peg leg for some reason that gets turned into an ion cannon. Uh, I think the reason I was able to go with Patrick Warburton so easily with a voice is he wasn't trying to be Tim Allen. And I, I hear either voice now and I go, oh, yeah, that's Buzz. But I can differentiate, oh, that's movie Buzz. That's animated series Buzz. And I love them both. They're both fantastic. Uh, and it had such weird and wacky uh, concepts and ideas for the show. So basically it was like almost like a kid's intro to science fiction because they did all kinds of weird stuff. They had robotic vampires. They had uh, giant mech suits. They had the LGMs. And he had his whole group the whole time. I think one of them was Nebula. Was one of them Nebula? I'm just now realizing. I'm, am I blanking on the name? But I think one of them was Nebula who also just... Happened to be blue. You had Nebula. I think Booster was one of them. Um, was one of them like not RC? That was that's from Toy Story, but Rex maybe. Uh, the basically a C three PO type that basically could be destroyed and will always come back. And he had an arch rival voiced by Dietrich Bayer. Uh, it was just such a fun action packed show with really good humor. It was one of my favorites of all time, and I'm sure that's my Toy Story bias coming through, but. That was one of those. What was it? Was it Toon Disney? You guys can correct me at home. Was it Toon Disney before it got turned into Disney XD? And if I if I remember correctly, that's what it's still called to this day. Like Toon Disney back in the day had some fantastic shows. So basically, they had like Buzz Lightyear of Star Command. Like I said, they had Tarzan, Aladdin, uh, American Dragon, Jake Long, which if I remember right, has just recently been added to Disney Plus. There's still a couple others that they're missing. Case in point, my next show, House of Mouse. Why is that not on Disney Plus? House of Mouse is freaking awesome. So for those that don't know, House of Mouse basically was like all Disney characters that you've ever known in animated form live in the same universe and go to the same nightclub together, the House of Mouse. And so they'd have these little um, skits in between old actual Disney cartoons. So they'd have like the goofy sports clips like from way back when but then those clips would be interspersed with some overarching narrative so maybe like i don't know mickey's out of town and donald's in charge of the house of mouse for the night and then you'd kind of follow those adventures in between these classic disney shorts it was such a really clever and fun idea and also got kids to see a different animation style that they were used to and kind of appreciate the history and go yeah this is what disney was mixed with what it currently is also, Disney, I still to this day do not understand why you don't put Mickey and other classic Disney characters in more stuff. If memory serves, the last movie of any kind that Mickey Mouse and company was in was, I think it was 2005's The Three Musketeers. Like, he's your biggest asset. Why are you not doing anything with him? And why isn't House of Mouse on Disney Plus? You watch, because I've said that. you It's absolutely going to be on Disney Plus. I'm going to probably need to go check that after this just to make sure. So we've got House of Mouse. we got Jimmy Neutron, Clone Wars. Um, ooh. Let's go with probably one of the most influential shows in my life and one of the shows that, frankly, just will never die just because it'll get rebooted every two to three years, so to speak, and that is Scooby-Doo. Now, I would specify what specific Scooby-Doo, but to be honest, if it had Scooby-Doo in the title, I would watch it as a kid. I watched the original uh, Scooby-Doo Where Are You on VHS. I had three original tapes that had uh, the first episode, I believe, was The Black Knight. I had that one on VHS. I had one... 
with in the castle i think was another one with the um with uh, the fortune teller which now that i'm thinking about it it's very much a wolfman nod uh, and then they always had like some other cartoon network show that's currently on shine plug that so like dexter's lab was always at the end so that's when i knew of like okay i gotta rewind the tape because for those listening at home tapes you had to rewind these magical things called tape for any of our younger audience out there uh scooby-doo was just my favorite it was more of the things that really sparked my love of mysteries growing up and i still really love them sherlock holmes is one of my favorite characters i just love the quest for knowledge is why i love knives out so much uh but whether it was scooby-doo where are you um yes i even watched a pup named scooby-doo even though it really was not that great i well, i would still watch it as much as red herring is probably one of the best scooby-doo characters ever created so for those that don't remember in a pup named Scooby-Doo, in every single episode when they were trying to figure out who did it, they'd be like, I think it's this, I think it's this. And then Fred would always go, I think it's red herring, which as a kid, you're just like, you laugh at the joke that it's Fred always thinking it's some dude that they go to school with. Now as an adult, I appreciate that joke even more because he's a literal red herring to throw you off the path of who we think is the actual bad guy in this episode. Uh, there was actually one episode that Red Herring was the bad guy that was behind the mask, but um, yeah, Red Herring was very entertaining. Uh, there was like one that was like Scooby-Doo meets the Boo Brothers or something like that. I watched all the Scooby-Doo meets episodes, whether it was Scooby-Doo meets the Harlem Globetrotters, Scooby-Doo meets Batman, Scooby-Doo meets Jonathan Winters. I didn't even know who Jonathan Winters was at the time, but it had Scooby-Doo on it, so I was going to watch that. But the version that I probably watched the most was What's New Scooby-Doo? I think that was like 2002 or 2003. And that's now either on Netflix or on HBO Max. And I've watched quite a few of those already because I think that felt the most like the traditional Scooby-Doo. Just with slightly better animation. I watch it now. I'm going, oh, yeah, that's still kind of cheap animation. But it's not as cheap as Hanna-Barbera, who is the cheapest of the cheap. But, hey, it made it work for them. Uh, but I, I loved What's New Scooby-Doo. I loved all the Scooby-Doo movies, Scooby-Doo and the Cyber Chase. Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island is still a Halloween must-watch for me because that traumatized the ever-living daylights out of me as a kid going, okay, let's see who's under the mask. Rip the zombie's head straight off and just seeing Fred just hold up a dismembered head and going, oh, it's okay. I didn't need sleep tonight or ever again. Uh, or Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost with Tim Curry as the villain. Just anything Scooby-Doo back in the day, I would watch. And that's because they had just so many good shows. And they always kept it fresh. I've not kept up with Scooby-Doo. I watched Scoob in 2020. And boy, that was an embarrassment of a movie. Uh, and I've heard supposedly pretty good things about Mystery Inc. So I might, I might watch that series. But... You put Scooby-Doo on anything, I'll give it at least a shot and watch it just because I have that much of an attachment from when I was a kid. Let's see what else we're going to have to bring us home, shall we? Um, yeah, we ba- mm. we've got one more and then basically everything else is superheroes because shocker, it has to be. Uh, however, you can kind of make the argument that this is kind of a superhero movie just like it's kind of an anime i was never an anime kid growing up and i'm still really not that's more of josh's department but the closest i ever dabbled and josh and i will still debate this to this day of whether or not it counts as an anime is avatar the last airbender which is one of my favorite animated shows of all time and it's 
a absolute travesty what we got in live action form. And so Netflix, you really can only go up. And I, I like the casting that I've seen so far for the new Netflix series, but it doesn't worry me that the creators already left the project. Um, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. But uh, after The Last Airbender, for those heathens that don't know, was basically Aang was this special boy that's been stuck in ice for a while until Sokka and Katara, two brother, uh, brother and sister, uh, find him and break him out and they become friends with him only to discover that he is basically the last airbender, a being that's supposed to master all the elements and bring peace to the land, which is really difficult to do when you've got the fire nation, uh, ruled over by fire Lord Ozai voiced by Mark Hamill. Always the best choice for villain voice acting, except for maybe Tim Curry, uh, you got Fire Lord Ozai running basically everything and trying to conquer even more and more land. So Fire Lord Ozai has a son named Prince Zuko, whose whole mission is basically, I need to capture the Avatar, which for all of season one was annoying because that was basically almost the only thing that came out of his mouth was, I need to capture the Avatar, and it got really, really annoying. But as the show progressed, Zuko became one of, if not my favorite characters on the show, just because he has one of the greatest arcs ever not just for an animated series but i think just in general of he starts the show basically wanting to capture the avatar just so he can rejoin his family and receive his honor again because he's been kicked out by his father but as the show progresses he basically goes from the show's lead villain to one of its main heroes it goes from heel to babyface, and that's a credit to the writing but also to his uncle iroh who is single-handedly one of the greatest written characters of all time iroh has his own baggage that he brings to the table of i think iroh's son died in war or something so he more or less treats zuko as his son and there's such powerful moments between the two of them. And that's not to neglect our main heroes. Aang is fantastic. He grows a lot because at the beginning, he is quite annoying. He is kind of a handful. But he's a kid, so you kind of expect that. Uh, Katara can be a bit stuck up and set in her ways, but she grows. Sokka is an immature, but kind of goof-offish, mature older brother, I guess. But throughout the show, becomes a really sophisticated leader. Everyone has such great arcs in the finale not going to give it away here for those that may not be overly familiar with it but the finale of avatar the last airbender is one of the most gratifying finales ever i also really really like this show just because any show that i have some form of a emotional connection to through watching it with other people is obviously going to be higher up on my fondness meter and i remember watching almost the entire show with my dad and he was just as if not more invested in it than i was he's actually seen legend of Korra, and even i haven't seen legend of Korra. but the two of us watching it together there's a couple shows that we watched together like he'd watch Yu-Gi-Oh with me but uh after the last airbender he was absolutely invested in it with me of going okay this is really really well written these are really good characters yeah there's some goofy humor here and there but the action is so well done the bending on the show is just beautifully done because they use actual fighting techniques incorporated into the animation style it really works so well uh so i always appreciated being able to watch that with him it was such a fun memory uh i've talked about uh watching man of steel with him first really show that i can remember watching together was avatar the last airbender that was one of our favorite things to watch together and we watched the live action movie in theaters and 
We both came away incredibly disappointed because so did everyone else that saw that movie in theaters. But yeah, Avatar The Last Airbender is just chef's kiss. It's probably the best Nickelodeon show that they've ever done. Um, so obviously, because it's me, I've got plenty of superhero shows. I got one that's kind of teeters on superhero, but they're based off of a comic book, so they're a superhero to me. And that's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. However, I know a large portion of people grew up on the original mid to late 80s cartoon and i watched some of those on dvd uh but i never really got into those i i didn't really care but i was a big turtles fan and that really stems from two things the original 1990 movie which i still think is one of the best superhero movies of all time and two the animated series that i believe debuted in 2003 that show to me is definitive turtles that is so so well done of it got dark and mature when it needed to be but lighthearted and fun when it needed to be i had every single toy possible i had the entire massive sewer playset. i had multiple versions of all the turtles the show still to me has the best incarnation of the shredder the shredder design is pitch perfect the foot clan just looked amazing but the show kept escalating the stakes. I remember, I think it was the season one finale. Uh, Splinter is basically put in critical condition by Splinter and the foot. And so they're like, we can't do this anymore with Splinter. With uh, Shredder, I mean. Oh, that's a very different show. Uh, we can't keep messing around with Shredder. We need to go to him once and for all. We need to stage our own attack here. And so basically what followed was like a three or four part basically one big quest of like the first episode was just getting into the building getting on the first floor it was kind of like uh dread or the raid of the turtles going level by level to get to the top of the building to face the shredder and it felt like such a big deal like the stakes were so high and everything that we'd seen up until that point in the show was compounding on itself you had like the first level you had the foot clan and maybe some of the mousers i think and then the next level you get this big cliffhanger of like there's massive clones like shredder clones you can't fight one shredder but now you have to have fight three or four gigantic mutated shredders and then get above that you have to beat shredder second in command and then you get to the top level and you finally beat have to face off against shredder but shredder's got this like magical elemental sword and it felt so epic in scale and at the end you get just leonardo and shredder one-on-one -on -one. you get that old spaghetti western of like zoom in on the eyes square off they jump at each other their swords connect and they two of them land on the opposite place where they took off from moment of stillness and shredder's head falls to the floor in silhouette form you're just like holy crap i just saw a decapitation on a kid's show and i kind of really really love it violence is fun everyone um so uh leonardo grabs the sword the day is saved yeah 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 we've beaten shredder once and for all so the credits start rolling this is my like my first like end credit scene at the end that they set the building on fire the body of shredder stands up and picks the head up and walks away and you're just going what i just experienced this big huge high of experiencing the turtles finally getting a victory over shredder only to find out how was he not dead and then you find out in later seasons how 
now, and it was kind of a cool way to bring in the old lore from the 80s show uh, with some characters there. It was a lot of fun. They, After a certain point, they really just kind of embraced all the source material. There was one special, in which case all turtles ever collided, whether it was like the black and white turtles from the comics or the original 80s, or the 2000s version. They all merged into one, and it was so much fun. Uh, yeah, I was a big Turtles fan for a lot of years. I still am, but boy, those those love action ones really kind of sucked it out of me recently. So I'm hoping um, Seth Rogen can kind of get things back on track, which is a weird sentence for me to say. But if Danny McBride can get Halloween back on track, maybe Seth Rogen can get Ninja Turtles back on track. What else do we got? We did that. We did that. Let's talk about... The second best DC animated show of all time, and up until recently, was my favorite animated show of all time, Batman the Animated Series. Now, Batman Animated Series is one of those shows that I have vivid, vivid memories of as a kid. Uh, every, I remember it came on every single day after the Addams Family, which for those that don't remember, yes, there was an actual animated Addams Family TV show, and I, I didn't really watch that. I just remember that was the thing that came on before uh, Batman Animated Series, because as soon as Batman Animated Series started, you knew it showed the Warner Brothers logo, and then it got turned into a blimp. You're like, oh. Even as a kid, you felt like you were watching something that was meant for the big kids like not, never that it was inappropriate for my age group but just the even as a kid the aesthetics and the tone of the show I was like i didn't know what mature was at as a kid but i i could tell that something about this was oh this is a big boy show and i like it uh whether it was the awesome awesome batmobile that i so desperately wanted that toy as a kid because i had a friend that had the full bat cave he had the batmobile and it oh it drives me nuts that he had it because it was so cool uh but batman the animated series is one of those that aged like a fine wine i go back and rewatch it now as an adult i'm going this is the definitive batman this is so so good um while we don't really get an origin in the show, if you want an origin of Batman, you've got to watch the best Batman movie of all time, Mask of the Phantasm. They again to give an origin out of that, which is still such a great underrated movie. I love Mask of the Phantasm so much. And any excuse to talk about Mask of the Phantasm is always fine with me. But uh, the show is just so perfectly cast. Like when I hear Batman, I when I'm reading comics and I hear Batman, I just hear kevin conroy i don't hear anybody else when i read joker i just hear mark hamill they knew to cast well for the show andrea romano who casted for the show thank you for all your work you were fantastic you picked absolutely the right people then they stuck around they're still doing it to this day kevin conroy and mark hamill will still pop up in their respective characters which i absolutely love uh then there'll be just certain episodes that really stand out like beware the gray ghost is one of my favorite animated series episodes of all time because i appreciate when shows honor their legacy but don't beat you over the head with that legacy so case in point with the beware the great ghost episode 
Batman is investigating a string of crimes that are following the Grey Ghost TV show. So he looks up the actor that played the Grey Ghost to help him solve this crime. The funny thing is, the Grey Ghost is voiced by Adam West. And so as the episode progresses, Batman will be like, when I was a kid, I would watch you all the time. I looked up to you. I always wanted to be the Grey Ghost, which is basically one Batman telling the other... When I was a kid, I wanted to be just like you. And it's such a cool passing of the torch. It's such a great moment. Even if it wasn't Adam West, I think that moment still could have really, really worked. Um, Obviously, I love me some Robin. And so when they introduced Robin in the show in later seasons, I thought that was great. Then showing the fallout between the two of them, I think, was perfect. I think the episode was called Things Change or something uh, because it's me. Of course, I have to know that. Uh, but showing how the fallout between Batman and Robin was so perfectly done. The only issues that I have with Dick Grayson is, God, I hate his Nightwing suit in the Batman the Animated Series. It looks so bad. He's got this weird mullet. There's like a lack of detail in his mask. The blue in, the, um, in his symbol just looks off. He's got these weird like Spider-Man wings. It just... Breathe. Calm. Calm blue ocean. It... Hmm. The show gets most of the stuff right, except kind of goes off the rail for season four, which I think was just retitled the new Batman adventures or something like that. It kind of got really bizarre. They changed up the animation style for no apparent reason. They made some really big character design redesigns, whether it was Joker got a really big one, which did not work. Catwoman season four was kind of an anomaly, but I would still watch it. Batman animated series was just such a special show to me of one of those that I felt older for watching it like oh this is what the cool kids watch this is this makes me feel like i'm i'm watching not like i'm watching something that i shouldn't be watching but like yeah this is this is serious stuff like don't get me wrong i loved the spider-man 90s series so so much and that probably is a nice honorable mention i love that spider-man so much but that hasn't aged as well especially in the animation department you can tell that they took some corners um what Batman animated series has aged so so well and I love it so so much and up until a few years ago it was not only my favorite DC animated show of all time it was just my favorite animated show of all time then some other annoying little show had to come along and knock that right off its perch Young Justice so I wish Josh was here for this so he could help attest to this because he actually plays a big part in my love of Young Justice. So I don't know what inspired me to watch it. I think I had heard that Nightwing was in the show or something like that. Uh, I hadn't reached like uber fandom with Nightwing yet, but I was getting pretty, pretty close. Uh, not to the level of obsessiveness that I'm at right now, obviously. The unhealthy kind, I will admit. I know that. Uh, but... I don't know what motivated us to watch it, but it must have been a Saturday and a Sunday. It couldn't have been a Friday and a Saturday, I don't think. But one day, I'm just like, hey, hey Josh, we're watching Young Justice if you want to watch. And so we watched all of season one in one sitting. For those at home going, that, okay, I watch stuff all the time. Young Justice has 26 episodes per season at about 23 minutes each. That was a full day of just one show. And we binged all of season one because I was like, okay, where's Nightwing? Where's Nightwing? Where's Nightwing? Yeah, you had Dick Grayson as Robin the entire time. But what they didn't tell you was there's like a five-year time gap between season one and season two. Thanks, guys. All you made me do was sit through season one, which is one of the best seasons of animation I've ever seen. What makes Young Justice so, so special is 
it understands what makes all the characters in the show so special. What makes uh, Miss Martian, McGann, special? What makes her different than Artemis, Speedy, Green Arrow's lackey? What makes her different than Wally West, uh, Kid Flash? What makes Kid Flash different than Dick Grayson? Which make What makes Dick Grayson different than Connor Kent's Superboy? And as the show progresses, all of them have their own different arcs. Superboy with his rage, Dick Grayson not knowing if he really wants the mantle of leadership in the Young Justice group. Um, but each episode was builds upon each other. So we watched all of season one in one day. We're like, that was good. Let's do it again. Let's do that again. So we watched season two the very next day from start to finish, which did have Nightwings. That was, we watched about 52 episodes in two days. Oh boy, that was probably the hardest I've ever binged for anything. We stopped to get Little Caesars and I think we may have stopped at Family Video for a quick detour, maybe, which rest in peace, Family Video, you will be missed. Uh, but Young Justice was one of our favorite series after that binge, and I've gone back and rewatched it several times over. Uh, season three was just phenomenal. I cannot wait for season four, Young Justice Phantoms. I really wish we had a release date or any information on that whatsoever. Um, but like I was saying about it understands its characters so well. Everything is so well written on the show. Everything has a purpose. Everything is built on previous material. My only gripe is, yes, I know the source material for a lot of these characters and I know and I love them, but... By the time you get to like season three and it's got this massive, massive cast, it might be a little difficult to someone that doesn't know comics. Uh, well, why are they in this role? Who are they? Who are they? Who are they? Like, why is Aqualad now Aquaman? That's kind of one of my only main gripes that I've had about every season of Young Justice is they always have these big leaps in time. Like in between season one and season two, it's like five years between season two and season three. It's like three years or two years and they never really explain what happens in between those and it's kind of annoying so you just kind of have to at some points you just have to kind of go with the story um but like i said the writing is so so brilliant the voice acting is phenomenal i feel pretty comfortable now saying that jesse mccartney is my favorite nightwing even more so than neil patrick harris as much as i love neil patrick harris in batman under the red hood i just think jesse mccartney having to be the dick grayson to Nightwing to season three Nightwing, which is different than season two. He's much more in his element. I think I'm just a Nightwing fan in general. You know that, but I'm a Jesse McCartney fan now because he voiced Nightwing and basically no other reason. I know he does some music stuff, but I'm like, he's Nightwing. I I would go to Jesse McCartney concert just to see Nightwing. That's how sad I am as a Nightwing fan. Uh, But Young Justice also as a Nightwing fan delivered to me one of the single best written lines about the character of Dick Grayson ever. So the Justice League has just discovered uh, that Shazam is actually a 10-year-old boy. So they're putting him up for trial as well as a couple other members of the league to say, hey, do we think they are worthy of being in the league? Yes or no? Do we want to keep them around? And so um, they somehow they bring up conversation about Robin and wonder woman specifically says well of course you want shazam around because you don't mind putting children in harm you've had robin in your care training him ever since he was a little kid um and then batman's like i trained him and took him under my wing for many years basically um to be able to fight to get vengeance on the people that killed his parents and wonder woman was like so that he'd end up just like you and batman goes 
so that he wouldn't. And I've never heard a better explanation for the character of Dick Grayson of why he is who he is. We often overlook how important Batman was to him. Batman didn't take Dick Grayson to mold him to be another Batman. He molded him to not be. Dick Grayson, unlike Batman, actually did get over his parents' death. He is allowed to have joy in his life. He's not consumed by the mission. He's consumed with his desire to help people, which to me is what makes him one of my favorite characters of all time. He's allowed to grow and mature, and the characters on Young Justice were allowed to grow and mature. A couple that has fun little chemistry in the first season end up getting engaged by the third season. You're just like, you are an actual believable couple because I've seen you struggle and have your issues, but you work it out like a normal human being and an alien would because it's an interesting dynamic there. Or there's a character that isn't around anymore after season two. You feel that loss in the moment when they're gone. I still think that character is coming back. Please, please, please. They never skip out on the emotion. Josh and I have talked about it on the podcast before, but there's a character called Dr. Fate who uh, is all-powerful, but he basically controls whoever's wearing the helmet of Dr. Fate. So Zatara wears the helmet and can only see his daughter Zatanna one day of the year, and then he basically goes back to being trapped in the Dr. Fate helmet. It's this great, huge cosmic power, but he only gets to see his family one day of the year, and it's really, really rough and emotional to watch. And you wouldn't expect that kind of complex writing. I know so many people of a certain generation will always go, Teen Titans is the best. And I don't get me wrong, I love Teen Titans. But in terms of superhero teams, I love Young Justice more than Teen Titans, more than Justice League, the animated series, which is saying something. I love that, as well as Justice League Unlimited. But to me, this is my favorite animated series of all time, just with how it portrays its characters that I have read for so many years that I love. The writing is so, so well done. Everything connects, and there are no filler episodes. Even when you think it's filler, something in that episode will come back, which is so hard to do in a 26-episode season, but they continue to do it time and time again, and it never ceases to amaze me how good the quality of the show is, and it's just phenomenal. I love Young Justice so much. Well, what do you guys think? What are some of your all-time favorite animated series? I love hearing from you guys. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on YouTube. We're so, so close to 500 subscribers. Please let us get there by the end of the year. We're getting so close. Once we get to 500 subscribers, I'm going to do a reaction video to my first ever video ever. Way back from Toy Story from 2014 when Toy Story 4 got announced. So, yeah. I'm both looking forward to and not looking forward to watching that cringe. But yeah, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on YouTube and Uncharted Media. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts at Uncharted Media, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or on YouTube again. And as always, stay sharp, movie guys and gals.